Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I am joined by guest Zach Stevens. Zach, welcome to the show. Jonathan, super stoked to be here. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about product marketing as a subscription service today. I know everyone's going to be very interested about that. But first, can you tell folks a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm Zach. I am a designer of nine years. And earlier this year, I've been toying with the idea of potentially doing a subscription model for my own services for brand identity design, web design, and my now co-founder, who is a very skilled and gifted marketer copywriter came to the came to me with the idea of doing product marketing as a service. So ended up joining forces with him. And now we help SaaS founders turn traffic into revenue. Love it. And I love the name. Yeah. Factor. So, well, Corey is a very gifted copywriter. So naturally, he's able to come up with these good monikers for services, offerings and brands. And I love it because it, you're able to do so much more with a well-crafted name and good story design wise. So Props to him for coming up with a good name. Killer. Love it. Okay, cool. So this conversation originated from an email you sent. It was almost two months ago, I think, correctly. And you said that at the time you had just launched. uh, And then soon after that, you were almost completely sold out or booked up. and, And we decided that we should wait a little bit to see, you know, how you liked it, how it went, you know, a couple of months. So what can you tell us about... I guess the initial, I'm super curious about the initial launch and how you got the word out and who were your first clients, that kind of thing. So like, because the idea is to paint the picture for someone who might be kind of renting themselves out by the hour to do a particular thing. um, And they're don't love the idea of doing sales. They don't love the idea of the why conversation and trying to get good at sales interviews and writing proposals. And they'd like something perhaps not as high margin, but they'd be willing to trade that kind of high margin, high stakes, custom project proposals, life for a more predictable income on a subscription basis. And I might be assuming the subscription piece, but let's talk about that. But a more predictable income, a more productized service, and and probably, I'm guessing, a more focused kind of work. But I'm, I'm kind of making a lot of assumptions here. So what what was the initial experience like switching from not subscription for whatever to subscription for a particular thing? At the time, I had I had done subscription in air quotes for specific clients, clients that I really liked or that I had a good relationship with. Um, also, one that I had did not have a good working relationship with, but that's we can dive into that story as well because there's a, a lesson to be learned about how you go about running something like this. Hmm. So I had done it before and I knew that it was predictable. I liked the idea of not having to go about doing things like a scope analysis or producing any kind of proposal and just say, just you get one thing at a time and you can give it to me as long as it's within my wheelhouse and my competencies, then I will get it back to you. The catch is that you get, I don't have to track hours. We don't have to look at uh, a defined scope. Uh, As long as I can do it, I will do it for you. Catches you just get one thing at a time. Uh, So I was familiar with it already, and there were some hesitations that I had about jumping into it and going the full-fledged subscription model of like not being able to funnel everybody through a interview with me to do like an initial sales call. Uh, But then I'd seen so many other people have success with it, and like you know Brett from Design Joy is kind of the bastion of 
this model, you know, one person earning $1.2 million a year. And then I heard you speak with Ron Baker about uh, the subscription model as well. And he and you and my co-founder, Corey, echoed something that came up three times and it took the third time for me to finally get it and for it to register, which was they're not paying for your services, they're paying for access to you. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably the first leap that took me to be on board with it, uh, as opposed to something like value-based pricing or productized services with a more defined scope. And as far as the initial launch goes, I was very fortunate because Corey had done such a, Corey, my co-founder, had done such a diligent job over the years building up a huge email list for people who are um, either marketers or have a marketing position at a company. So he's got 20,000 people following him on Twitter, 20,000 people on his email list. And so when we sent this out and launched it, our conversion rate had to be in like the thousands of percentage points to (laughs) make us at full capacity. Right. Uh, So we had a lot of things going in our favor. And I mean, I don't want to discount myself too much because I did a good job of making us look legit and like we were worth people's money based on the branding and stuff that I did. But we had a lot of people that we were able to get right in front of. Nice. That's fabulous. Okay. So uh, what, you know, you said a thousandth of a percent of 20,000 people or 40,000 people if you count social also. Mm-hmm. What did you, th- what were your thoughts around capacity at the time? Like, what did you think was the maximum number of clients you could handle it just as a guess? Well, we, we set the bar very low. We said, we only want to take on five at one time to see how well we manage these people. And when you're charging six grand per person as your minimum price, that's 30 grand per month, uh, which is nothing to snuff at. You know, that's a sizable income for uh, essentially two two to three people running running the show just to see if we could manage the workload. Uh, so we knew that we were going to cap it at five. We ended up having two people sign up at like the exact same time. So we ended up going one over. And we're like, okay, we'll, we'll be all right. Um, nice problem to have. Nice problem to have. Uh, but now we're opening it up again. The whole point was to just make sure that we could manage the workload and also to uh, promote some kind of scarcity with the kind of people that we were working with and to show that we're not here to service 100 different people poorly. We're here to service 10 to 12 at max very efficiently. And what are those? So I'm imagining you have a very specific, even more specific than you already listed out. So like, who's your ideal client based on what you know now? We like to work with SaaS teams of less than 10 people, ideally, that have got some runway, like they've established the fact that they have a good product. Uh, they probably, the, I think the most common thing that we have is around the problem of a leaky bucket mm-hmm. where they're getting a bunch of traffic. They have a lot of people that are coming to their site, but there's so many parts where they fall out either through poor messaging on the website, not being able to convey, uh, look legit, like they they look scammy or they look like a bootstrapper created it. And so it's not like worth the price tag. Mm-hmm. Um, email sequencing, all the things that are around product marketing and after somebody hits the website is where we come in and do the most damage <laughs> and make it it's like turning things uh turning products into uh something like a nice to have to something that people must have right now great okay and so that's it. you said i think at the beginning use the word conversion like turning your traffic into customers or something like that traffic into revenue traffic into revenue thank you okay great 
cool. Well, that's got to be very attractive to that market, right? So that they know they've got this sort of leaky funnel or leaky bucket. They're getting traffic to the site. They know once they activate clients that they stay around. You're not solving a churn problem, right? So it's a very, very specific problem that you're solving. Or tell me if you are, correct me. Sometimes it is. It's because uh, oftentimes churn is a result of bad expectations. Okay. And we, we try and help set the expectations of this is exactly what you're getting. And it's hard for people to talk about themselves just in general from a yeah. company standpoint, but then also to say it in a way that's very clear and concise uh, and avoiding being cute and more trying to answer questions with clarity and setting them up so they know what they're getting into. And this is what I will receive from this product. And that helps mitigate against the the churn that uh, is prevalent in a lot of SaaS companies. Yep. Okay. So is there any pattern the types of SaaS, like are they typically more B2C or B2B or enterprise or tiered or, you know, is there, I'm just curious if those things are, if you see any patterns there or if it's really just more about the team size and the fact you got this kind of proven product, but a leaky bucket. Well, 90% of SaaS is B2B initially. So that sets us up to have more of a pool of people that are in the B2B space. We could operate for someone that's in a, a B2C arena, but just given the nature of how many SaaS companies there are and the likelihood that they will be a B2B company, all of ours are B2B. So it's around things like people who are offering a SMS marketing platform for creators or uh, a AI site monitor and heat mapping tool. So a lot of it is it's around business to business problems and mm -hmm. As far as enterprise versus non-enterprise, I feel like now every SaaS company has an enterprise platform, whether they use it or not, is a different story. It's usually just there's like a pricing anchor. Uh, but I would say that they, I would characterize one to two of our clients as an enterprise tool. And then the remaining five, I would say, are, I wouldn't call them, I would, it's not they couldn't be enterprise, but they more operate for other small, small to medium-sized businesses as well. Okay. And, and how different are their relative price ranges? Like, are they all kind of have a starting offer? You know, I'm going to guess it's a lot of bronze, silver, gold, and to, you know, price tiers. It's they're starting in the $49 range and they go up to maybe the, the $495 range. But is that totally off base or is that kind of kind of what you're looking at? Some go, some go a little bit higher. Like, uh, we just got off the phone with somebody who their highest tier is $999, like $1,000 mm -hmm. a month. Yeah. That's their ultra enterprise solution but that sounds about right i think that there might be a couple as well that are in the that have it's like a 20 dollar tier yep uh at least if they have an offering for somebody who's like a boot or a solopreneur business they but that's specifically within their marketing like they have that offer because they're working with soloists and having that 20 dollar tier for a single person operation is a lot more feasible than 49 right which would be more than double the cost right Okay, so that paints a really clear picture of how specific your, at least the whether or not, you know, how, how much it, this was conscious and how much of it was just like a result of coming from Corey's list and who was on there. It's very specific. It's extremely specific. So that's, yes. I think that that would end up being quite important in terms of capacity planning and what you would expect the workload to be. So if you had somebody, for example, if... HubSpot hired you and 
or some Salesforce, like someone huge, right? You probably, I would imagine you would be likely to get overwhelmed with your request because you've got, they've got so many irons in the fire. They got so many employees, you know, like, like let's, let's, let's pivot into capacity a little bit and mm -hmm. talk about your process for not getting overwhelmed by, you know, that, what do you, I think you said seven clients now. How many do you have now? Yeah, currently we have seven okay, and so. uh, we'll be hopefully at nine by the end of the week if things go well. <laughs> cool. That's awesome. So what is, what is the capacity? What is the, what was the fear? And then what was the reality months later? Uh, the fear was that we were going to not be able to fulfill and do a job to our standards that we couldn't put out work that we felt really proud of and that clients would be really happy with. And also starting small, because both Corey and I, I there's no reason, we, we both thought that this is a hypothesis and we're going to test it out, see if we like this, um, if the workload is good, and if we feel that we uh, can do this and do it in a way that makes us both feel good for what we're putting out there and that provides value to clients. And then just seeing how often we can do that. It was really just to help us dip our toe in mm -hmm. instead of having to jump headfirst, because both of us have other businesses as well that we, I mean, I'm technically still running Zach Stevens Design Company, even though all my time is going to Conversion Factory. Mm -hmm. But the point was for us to test this out and see how effectively we could do it and making sure that we had a number that we knew we could handle so that we didn't get overwhelmed with 20 people signing up. And all of a sudden we have this huge backlog of stuff that we need to do. Mm -hmm. And our initial launch blows up like before it even leaves the atmosphere. Right. Right. Okay. So what was the experience? So you got these six people that probably all onboarding right around the same time, which is pro probably wouldn't be normal, you know, at once things are a going concern and you probably, you know, of course, like everyone, you're going to have some churn as well. And in theory, you'd have a, a better, a little bit more control over when new clients were onboarded and so forth and what there's a lot of controls you could have then but so launch is a special situation you're like okay cap it at five one extra snuck in and what maybe not if well at first i guess i'm curious about what do you do now any what what have you changed about your initial onboarding what did you learn from your initial approach to onboarding that has been changed if anything i think the biggest takeaway from us was particularly for the people that are coming to see us, there's a lot of strategic implementation that they want first, which we hadn't thought they would want because we thought that with the with the subscription model that they would be more looking at to ask at, to us as yeah. like, hey, create this landing page, create this logo, do some copy for this, which make an email sequence for us for our onboarding. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, they needed, we got more people on a higher tier and I think that we're going to start pushing people to say, hey, it works really well, depending on their their circumstance. Like you mentioned HubSpot. HubSpot doesn't need a lot of strategic advice from us. At least I don't <laughs> think so. But uh, to push people and say, you know, it works really well if we're able to jump in and do some of the premium tier services that we offer, like customer research, positioning, pricing strategy, brand strategy, so that we can lay a more solid foundation before we start doing all these other things if we build you a bunch of landing pages and we know that you're going to want to update your branding and your messaging, then we're going to have a lot of dirty dishes that we have to clean up and mm -hmm. then and then get out of the sink. 
So let's just clean the dirty dishes that you have right now before we start making new ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great analogy. So visual. And and you were, you said, I think you said you were surprised by how many people did kind of want that a higher level positioning, branding, and so forth. Yeah, we actually have, it's about half now. So half are, no, it's more than half. So more than half of our clients right now are on a higher strategy based tier with our premium sync tier where they get FaceTime with us on a biweekly basis. And there's some premium services in there as well that aren't available on the lower tier. And it's more than half, more than half are on that premium tier. And how much is that? Nine. So uh, async plan is 6K a month. And then the premium tier is nine. Killer. Okay. And what, what about the, uh, what does it feel like capacity wise? So like, like how, how close to the edge does it feel? Do you know what I mean? It's I, what am I trying to ask here? It's kind of like, how precarious does it seem? I'm, I'm assuming you're going to say not very, but I'm curious because I can imagine people being like, thinking like, oh, you know, I mean, you onboarded seven clients in two months, six weeks, like most people, that's two years of deals, you know? So yeah. like, yikes that in theory, right. and, you know, so, and, and if they're used to clients really burying them with work or lots of change requests or unexpected scope creep or any of those things, like having seven clients from a standing start going from zero to, you know, close to 50, around 50 grand a month, boom, in one or two months with two or three people, it's like, it seems impossible. So what, what's the thing that we don't see from the outside that makes it not impossible? I think there's a couple things that contribute to it. Uh, I will say at, at initial onset, it did feel like there was a lot going on because we were doing not only fulfillment, but also sales calls of new prospective clients. That was probably like the first month was me and Corey jumping into a call and then both of us going away for two hours to work on stuff for clients that had signed up without having to call us and then jumping into another call. Like I remember there was a week where we had eight calls lined up in addition to doing the work. Mm -hmm. So having to onboard five at one time and learn everything about those those brands and those clients uh, and then do work for them as well, those initial four weeks were pretty hectic because we were doing so much. But then it kind of fizzled out. And we, as soon as we familiarized ourselves with, I mean, speaking from my deliverables, like all the design stuff, I got to know all their colors, got to know their typefaces, got to know what their mark, chief marketing officers like and don't like and how I can be a better service to them. Things got a lot smoother. Uh, so I think that having, if we could have trailed out the onboarding parts, that yeah. I think that would have made things go a lot smoother. Right. Also worth keeping in mind that anytime Corey is working on something like a copywriting request or email sequencing, or if he's doing customer research, they're not working with me. So mm-hmm. it's split that way too. Cause we have, since we have multiple people working on stuff, doesn't, re- not everything requires both of our, both of our attention. So mm-hmm. that's been helpful as well. Right. Got it. Share the duties, share the responsibilities. Okay. So what I'm curious how elaborate it's just it's been not that long but how elaborate is your process for getting answers to all those questions like you you just listed like finding out what the cmo likes colors all those the getting to know the getting to know them piece brett at design joy 
I think famously, there's no phone calls, no meetings, no nothing, take it or leave it. So how do you communicate? How, how, do the, how does the client communicate that stuff to you in a way that uh, allows you to produce work, satisfactory work as quickly as possible? Is it just a, a phone call and like they give you access to a Dropbox or do you have like some kind of software or something that, that like an ingest, ingestion system? I mean, uh, using the term loosely ingestion system, uh, in our, in our notion doc where we have like all of our client, we run up our client operations, uh, we have a template that we use whenever a new client shows up and we have in there a space for them to put their logo files, any kind of brand guides or positioning work that they've done. Um, we can also take a look at their website as well and just see like, okay, what are, what's the kind of language they use? Do they have any kind of formatting or stuff that we can use that's ready-made kind of like a border so that we can then uh, work a little bit faster. And as far as understanding what they like, that it's very, it's highly nuanced stuff. Things like, oh, you know, I think I would like this, these, the letter spacing on this header to be four pixels instead of two. <laughs> that That's, that's more of the stuff that, that I was understanding and learning and that they would call me on, but that's okay because we still, at the end of the day, we're still able to take them to the 96, 97% finished. And then if they have feedback that is something along those lines of, I would like this to be tweaked just a little bit, or can you make that blue a little bit more bluer? <laughs> then those are things that I'm not going to know, nor am I going to be able to find out from any kind of material that they give us. Right. But that comes with the relationship and the rapport. It never hurts to send smiley faces over, like, you know, as an emoji when you're saying, <laughs> oh, hey, you know, I'll, I'll get right on that, Fred. Uh, thanks a bunch for all your feedback. I appreciate it. Right. So so to summarize that, it's kind of like, you know, min minimum viable client communication at the beginning, and then you get to know them through their revision requests. Cool. Yeah. And we're super, like, we love using tools like Loom, anything that we can do to make it feel like we are in the room with them. Mm -hmm. And like, I will walk through every single deliverable that I send a client so they can hear the thinking, they can hear the decision-making process that went into it. So there's a lot of communication that's done that might not be face-to-face, -face, but it's really, really good and it helps get the point across. So when you say not face-to-face, -face, you mean not synchronous, right? Like, I'm sure you don't do anything in person. Uh, well, face either via Zoom or in person. We Because we haven't had anybody, both Corey and I are in San Diego, and we haven't had anybody from our hometown that's wanted to meet up with us until last week where somebody asked us the question, would you be okay meeting us in person for the first sync up meeting, which we said, uh, you know what? I mean, if you're in San Diego, we're, we're not going to say no, just know that this is a very, uh, special case because you are here and we're not going to do this for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when I say, uh, communicate, it's just not where we're together, like where they can hear us say something and then re respond at the exact same time. It's all done asynchronous communication. Perfect. That's great. Yeah. That gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of spreading out the workload. So what, what are the other communication channels? I'd be very curious to know, I'm sure people would be very curious to know, like what, what are the channels that are, that you do you support? It might say this on your website, but, but is it, for example, do you kind of insist that any new clients go through like your Slack or your notion or whatever, or do you say like, oh, you know, we'll join your Slack or we'll join your team's instance or however you say that and and 
like how similar in terms of communication, the back and forth communication, how similar are all of your clients? Is it kind of custom for all the different ones? They have different things or is it all the same and kind of standardized? This is a really good point because if you, I don't know if you have this issue, but I know me, if I have things like, if I have to respond to some clients in Gmail, if I have to respond to some clients in Slack, some clients directly in Figma, it just Nightmare. hurts your mind. Nightmare. Like, yeah, it's horrible. It's exactly the thing you don't want to do. So centralizing your communication efforts as much as you can. And I stress that because there are some ancillary methods by which I will get feedback. It's like if I send somebody a Loom video, they can comment on the Loom video and I might get notified there. But that's not as bad as being able to or having to go through Gmail, go through their Slack, make sure that we're in all the appropriate Slack channels, getting invited to like the ones that they create that we don't want to be a part of. Uh, yeah. So all our communication is mostly in Notion and that's where we'll drop things. Yeah, where we'll drop things like comments, because uh, I mean, it's it's such a powerful wiki that you can add pretty much whatever you need to in there. Like I will drop Figma files, Corey can drop, or he, Corey will most likely just write the copy in Notion itself because he can do that. So most of it's done through there. And the other ancillary methods might be like if the client has a Google Doc that they've written a bunch of web copy on, they might go back and forth within that. Or they might comment directly on a Figma file that I've created, which isn't that bad because I have to go look at it anyway. And then I can see more precisely what they're commenting on. So stuff that I don't mind really, but making sure that we weren't subject to joining their Slack channels, any communication methods that they prefer, that was a big no-no for us. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and over the years of different things I've done that involved client communications, just complete, it's instant disaster if they it's just i just can't work with i I learned early on i could not work with someone who insisted that i use their platform it just doesn't work so that that's a real that is something to keep in mind ladies and gentlemen if you have especially the thing is you if you follow this model and it works you're going to have way more clients at the same time more concurrently than you're used to because most people are used to having like one or two I shouldn't say most people, most people I work with, they're used to having like one or two clients. Maybe they have a whale client and then maybe, maybe two other ones that are old legacy clients that have little things to do, but they, they don't have, there's not, it's not a, it doesn't get to the level of like, oh, we have 15 active clients. No, it's like a hype dream, right? So they, so the idea of being concerned about this sort of a thing and how important it is, is, is I'm glad, I'm glad we're talking about it because it's pretty important. Um, the the other thing that you mentioned around you know Figma and or maybe Google Docs or whatever that's that is something I have never found to be a problem. I'm not sure why, but I think it's like you said, you have to go there anyway, so it's like in your face, and it's a more appropriate place to put it because it's right where you need it. So there's something about that that seems like a loophole, but is in reality is pretty useful. Okay. Yes, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's like I said, it's. It's a. It's not them having a pattern interrupt, right? It's just it's part of the my day to day. Like I'm gonna go in there anyway, and mm-hmm. if it's gonna help expedite the process, then I'm all for it. Right. Or or do you have to like? Say, There's this thing called Figma, and that's where we do it. And you like kind of onboard them into the product. Uh, Figma, given the people that we work with, Figma is a really common design tool, especially for people who are in the software industry. Uh, so that one we haven't had a lot of issue with at all. Notion has had some people like we had a 
clients say, I just don't like moving the cards back and forth. But that, I mean, that would have been any of those Kanban board yeah, Trello, systems, right? Yeah. Like whether it's Trello or Asana, whatever. Uh, so we all we do is we send a, a quick little video when they come on board that is, here's how to use this Notion doc. And if you want to make a request, here's how you do it. The thing is to try and limit the stuff that they have to do. Because yeah. for us, we're just like, no, you just move the card and then write stuff. Like that. that's it. You don't have to, because you can do a bunch of stuff in Notion, but they don't have to do that. That's that's just for us right. to know. Right. Okay, cool. So, so it hasn't been too much of a problem, but it is, it has cropped up a little bit. What, yeah, just a little bit. Cool. What is the, what would you say are those, the, the boilerplate or the templates or any systemization that you've done or plan to do very soon? What, what are the real low hanging fruit kinds of things? that you think would probably be common for someone who might be making a shift like this, you know, from, from just doing custom stuff to having a subscription as a service. And cause you mm -hmm. mentioned, you mentioned that you had like a, a questionnaire, you mentioned the vi onboarding video for like how to use uh, notion, like what are, what are some other things that you're, you maybe did manually a few times and you're like, this should be a video. And then you made the video and like, wow, I don't have to do that anymore. So I'm looking for early optimizations on probably the communication process or the file transfer or whatever. Uh, yeah, I think that the, so getting that initial video of this is how Notion works, here's how you use it, that goes out when the client signs up was really helpful because it just got them in. Um, Notion does have a drawback in that you're not able to get the same kind of automation that you are with Trello. It's like we actually do have to create the board when someone signs up mm. and then invite them to it, which was something that, we think we might want to change later this year. Like we might be switching platforms as far as what we manage all our stuff in simply for that purpose. But because we took on so few clients for like, that oh, doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Like we can create and create a template for them and then duplicate it, invite them to it. So that wasn't that huge of an issue, but that would be one thing. If I could go back, I would try and do something that was very automated, like no delays in the process of... Yeah someone signs up, then they can immediately create the task that's on their mind that's making them want to sign up in the first place. Right, the whole reason, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't that big of a deal for us because, again, we were taking on so few and we were awake and we got notified as soon as people signed up. So it felt instantaneous, even though it really wasn't. Um, yeah. The second thing I would say is that because the stuff that we're doing has so many compounding tasks on it, we've created what are called blueprints. And these are like, predetermined sets of tasks that walk people step through step by step. Like if you want a web page, here's step one to do that. Here's step two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And then they can move those cards over and they already have somewhat of a roadmap of all the things that need to get done. Whoa, whoa this and is, wait, wait, wait. So that's very interesting, but I'm not sure I'm understanding. So, so sure. let's, let's go back to, it's like, it's a web page and they want, yeah, just, just like re-say that a little slower. Cause that sounds very interesting. <laughs> So, I mean, conversion factory being conversion factory, we have blueprints that are inside of our uh, notion boards. Like best practices what, kind of things? No, they're actually, like, what do you it's mean, like a blueprint. A blueprint. Like the, it's a blueprint. Like here's step one to do this thing that you want. So, cause we know what most of the tasks people come to us for. Mm -hmm. It's web pages, websites, email onboarding, brand identity design. And like, I would say those are probably the, the biggest ones. Okay. Um, or like a miscellaneous marketing collateral. So having done all this stuff before, we know what 
the steps are in the frameworks. So we can have a card in there that has subsidiary cards inside of it. It's like when someone moves a, uh, a web page blueprint over, we can take the small subtasks out of that and then they all get populated in the backlog. Okay. And we'll move the first, the first step over. Does so that make sense? It's getting closer. So <laughs> as the customer experience, so I'm, I'm your client and you like, and you're explaining this to me. So, and, and you say something like, okay, like just break it down into the, into like the, the, like I'm six years old. Like I, you use Zach says to Jonathan, I'm your new client. If you want a web page, do this. Yes, and, so I'd say, Jonathan, if you want a web page, yeah. you can take our web page blueprint and then you can take all of the subtasks that are a part of that and use those as a starting point so that you know exactly what tasks have to go into this. And that way, you're not having to think from scratch, like, what is the first subtask that needs to come into this larger project that I want to achieve and accomplish? And I'm in Notion and I'm grabbing this broad mini project subtasks anyway and and what am i moving over like what because you're only allowed to make one request at a time so if i move the whole mm -hmm. thing over then i'm kind of giving you like 12 requests and you're going to what work through them one at a time or or am i moving yes. just the first one over so there's some analog there's an analog step in there where they'll move the project task over the blueprint card mm -hmm. and then inside that blueprint card there are the subtasks and so yeah. what we will do is we'll go in and we'll move this out because it's it's like a more nuanced movement and gesture in Webflow or not Webflow, Notion to do that. So we'll just, the client will move the web page blueprint over and then we will say, okay, cool. Like here are the other tasks for that. Let's get started with step one. So that way we're actually cranking stuff out and sending deliverables over and doing so with the frameworks that we know need to be done to complete this task as a whole. Okay. So like, so they move the whole chunk over so they don't have to think <laughs> about that. And then you get to work the first thing. That's right. Right. Okay. So then do you, I know this is super tactical, but it, it's really useful. I know it's useful for people listening. So then in Notion, and I've never seen this in Notion, so I'm just picturing Trello, but in, in the Kanban thing, you're th then what would you do? You would move that first task into some kind of active column. Like this is the thing, you know, in progress, or this is the thing we're working on. And it's like, it, what, what's that first one for a web page? Is it like they send over some headline or like, what is it for? Like, how do you know what it's even for? Yeah. So they'll still have a description point where they can say, what is the goal of this deliverable? What are you expecting? Uh, all the general stuff that you would get from a task and the granularity of it is that they they only have to move over the bit like the web page blueprint and yep. then we come in we'll make a duplicate of that so that we have the template still intact and then we'll take all the subtasks move those into the backlog and then get started on step 1 of all those sub those like eight subtasks okay. and the step the first first step in that would if you're asking specifically would be something more along the lines of a wireframe where mm -hmm. They let me know exactly what it is. They might have attached a rough outline in like a Google Doc or something like that. And that way we can get to work on a higher level deliverable, like a more of like the architecting of that project and get alignment on that. Cool. Move that over to the done column. Step two comes in. Great. Step two's finished. Then step three, four, five, six. Mm. Uh, and you can actually do this in Trello a lot more effectively because if something that I was 
after we had come up with this idea for blueprints, I wanted to explore. But Trello actually has a mechanism where you can create these, I forget exactly what they were called, but it's buttons where if I click this, then it will do something with the cards. Like it will auto-populate a series of cards mm. that you teed up. And it was pretty cool. Like I, it's something that that's probably one of the reasons why we might switch over at some point. Uh, because they can do something that's a lot more simple. Like I click this one, it will auto-populate with all these tasks and it will move task number one into the in-progress column. Right, moves. So just try, yeah, trying to simplify that idea of one task at a time because a client's not going to necessarily know where to start with like a brand identity process. It's like, I know I'd want this thing, but I have no idea how to get there. So can you help me see what steps need to be taken? Because I might have steps one through four completed on my end. And then because I know exactly where we're at in the process, I can just know that we, I know from as a client that we can skip to step five and that makes it a lot easier. Mm. Wild. That's very, so this is, I've talked to a few people who are doing some kind of implementation execution as a service. And this is, this is unique. And I see tons of benefits to it. It's a, it reminds me a little bit of when I interviewed James Turner from Snap Copy, where they've got these these different. Th- they sell credits, and then they've got all. I was going to say, yeah I, yeah, I remember this podcast. I might just full disclosure. I am a fan of Jonathan's. And I do listen to his podcast. <laughs> I, I remember hearing these guys. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Like the the credit mechanism where you can pay to play yeah. and. Uh, jump in. I'm sorry, I interrupted but, you. Continue. Yeah, but the, so the <laughs> thing, the thing about it is the, the way that the reason that works is because they've got all of these, because then the problem that they have is like, oh, I bought all these credits because I needed, I wanted to do this one particular thing and I had to buy $3,000 worth of credits, but I only needed to use 500. So like, you know, and for them, they want people to keep using them. They don't want people to, you know, spend $3,000 to get $500 worth of stuff done and then just like let it expire. That's not good for business long-term. So they went through the exercise, or I think whoever, some, you know, earlier might have been uh, Leanna or I, who did it, joint maybe. But they pre-scoped a whole bunch of common things. And they, I, I want to say there were like, like 20 of them. There were quite a few things. And like this kind of a thing is one credit. This kind of, these, these are all the things that are two credits. These are all the things that are three credits. And it remind, when you were talking about the blueprints, it reminded me a little bit of that. But instead of this sort of, um, abstraction between the dollars and the credits and the tasks. It's more like, look, we, we know what needs to happen when, you know, from experience, we know what the patterns are when someone needs a new web page, for example, that is going to turn their traffic into revenue because the goal is always, the ultimate goal is always the same. The ultimate goal of everything you do is always the same, or at least it's projected that way. It's like turn the traffic into revenue. So, okay. Given that, base assumption. Here's the, here's the process for common activities and we'll just plow through them, uh, in a sort of, well, this is a good next question in a, in what, in what way do you plow through them? So, so let's say you've got all these people and they're moving these blueprints over and then you take the first task out and this moves into in progress. What does your day look like? So both, both you and Corey and, and like, how does it, how does the interplay work? So is like when the thing gets moved to in progress, is it automatically predefined as a copywriting thing for Corey or as a Figma thing for you or like what's going on there? And then like, like you get to your desk, you open up what, 
and then what do you do how do you how do you remember to touch every client in a reasonable amount of time like is it some round robin kind of process do you have a list like what was the last thing i did how do you how do you maintain that i'm just very hawkish with everything so even if i know Corey is working on something that i'm not directly a part of i still want to know what's going on in case i do need to jump in i want to have context for what's done in the past uh where they at now just mm-hmm. gaining all that contextual information so that i can do the my job to the best of my ability. Smart. Okay. Uh, I mean, my day, I try and plan, like just on every Sunday, I try and write down what's going on with each client, like just the last task that's on their notion board. Mm-hmm. So I know exactly what my starting point is going to be on Monday. Uh, and I will first, if I can, I will start working on something that I know I have to work on before I check notion to see if they had moved anything over, if they'd commented because I want to get the thing done that I know I have to get done. That's like that big rock project on my plate. Yeah. Like if I need to develop a web page or if I need to do logo concepts or if I need to do something that requires like the best of my brain's abilities, I will work on that first. And then around, and I generally start work between eight and nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'll go for like however long it takes. If it takes the three hour work period that I like to have in the morning, to get that done, then that's great because it was a really big, deep project that required uh, a lot of brain power for me, and I was happy to give it in the morning. And, and then probably, I'll check. And, and you're see. probably going into Figma, so like like eight thirty in the morning, you like know that client B needs X, and you you avoid Notion, you go into Figma or whatever your whatever app you need to do that work. Is that right? That's right. Great, yeah. killer. Okay. Or I'll check. Well, and Corey, so Corey. Nick and myself, my Nick is our other co-founder. We all have each other's numbers. So if there is a, and I don't ever expect there to be this because of the industry that we work in, if there was something that really needed my attention, then they would either call me or text me mm-hmm. and say, hey, dude, 911, you need to get on this now and or talk with us about it. But like I said, the likelihood of that is very low considering the the things that we work on. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay, yeah. so, so how many clients do you use I keep using the word touch and I know that's the word. It just feels weird. But like how many clients do you touch in a given day? Like what's the goal? Do you try and touch every client project, move every client project or task forward a little bit every day? Or is it like throughout the course of the week, you're going to touch everybody at least once? How do you, how do you, like, what do you think is the, I don't want to say bare minimum, but, but that's kind of what I mean. Like, what do, what do you think is the bare minimum in terms of client communication for them to feel like, you're still in their corner. You haven't forgotten about um, things are moving forward and they're happy to let their, I don't know, I guess credit card run again at the end of the month or when they see it run, they're like, yeah, that was worth it. I think if you can get to them within every 48 hours, then you're doing solid because a lot of times you'll, they'll move a project over and it will have a set duration, like a typical duration on there of one to three days. Oh, really? That's our lowest, our lowest one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like if we're doing something that requires a really big, heavy lift, like if Corey's doing customer research, I mean, that could take weeks. You know, it's where he's actually going on calls with their customers and getting information and listening to them. So uh, I feel like as long as they can see things being worked on within every 48 hours, and even if it's just a progress update, like, hey, mm-hmm. this is where I'm at so far. Uh, if you need to do a technical gut check on something, go ahead. Uh, that's it. And most of the clients, because some of them do get to see us uh, they sync, have sync calls with us every other week. Right. Those More ones we can, 
yeah, we can we can wait until like we see them again to like because they probably want to talk through some of the nuance of the project anyway, mm-hmm. and then we can do that. But I try and do every forty eight hours, depending on the task. Like if I had a bunch of stuff that I could do while I was watching TV that mm-hmm. wasn't uh, a big deal, then I'm just gonna bust through those as as quick as I can and get them all off my plate. So that way everyone's happy. It really depends on what what each client is looking for. Uh, what I would aim to do is just do what has to get done. So if it's a, a really big task, then I'm going to allocate a specific amount of time to that so that I know I'm going to give this my best efforts and things that need to get, do what needs to get done for it. Yeah. What's an example small, of a, oh, sorry. Before well, we move on, look, what's a bit, what's the example of a big task versus a small task? Sure. So like if I have to come up with creative directions for uh, the brand identity that's going to be created for X client, that's a lot of innovation work where there's a lot of mess. There's yep. a lot of things that I don't know that are going to work that might work. So a lot of explore, exploratory a lot of yeah. elements. Yeah, lots of waste. Uh, so that is something that I would say is like a larger project that requires a lot of give and take from me where... Yep. It's not going to be very cut and dry. There's going to be a lot of nuance to it that I have to navigate and then figure out which is the best solution. Mm-hmm. And it, it might be really quick. It might be really, and it might be longer than I'm anticipating. Okay. And then a small task is like? A small task is like, hey, I need these table signs for an event on Friday. Can you please put this together, put a QR code on it and make sure it has printer's marks and just make it look branded. It's like, cool, I'll have this done in half an hour. Here you go. Great. All right, cool. Now I want to jump back to the comment you made about sitting on the couch watching TV and like kind of like, like, oh, this is sort of, I can do this at the same time. It's kind of fun. Um, What is the, it's like torrentially down. I'm sure the sound is terrible right now. It's like raining so bad. Apologies, listener. It's definitely, I hope it's not as bad as the leaf blower that's going outside my window right now. I can't hear that. Hopefully you can't hear the rain. Anyway, um, what? I have to ask all these stupid questions. It's, it feels like a dumb question, right? But like work-life balance, you know, don't, don't you feel, I'm trying to, I'm trying to surface all the fears of the listener. Don't you feel like there's this never ending tide or, you know, this, this never ending request funnel that's just bearing down on you and you have to like do things while you're watching TV and you're, you know, does it, does it feel incessant or does it like, how does it feel? Cause it's gotta be different. It's got to be different than, than, you know, we didn't talk about your former earlier life or your, mm. d- your direct design business, how you price that work and how you bill for it. But I suppose everybody has the experience of billing hourly at some point. So how does it feel? Does it feel better and more predictable or does it feel like exhausting and Sisyphean, if that's how you say that? Um, I think that the, so I'll answer, I'll answer the first part. I don't like using the term work-life balance. Mm. Uh, I like using harmony instead, work-life harmony. So at huh. some points, you're going to have parts of your day where work is a lot more louder. And you hear that as more of the, it's the, it's the primary instrument that's being played uh, versus, <laughs> versus yeah. life, you know, yeah, yeah. where it's like, hey, you know what? Um, baseline's taking a backseat on this one, but drums are going to go ham right now. And, <laughs> and that's okay because I, I like knowing that things are going to fluctuate and putting yourself in that situation where you're like, I just want to have this predictable like time where I'm only going to work here. And that's it. It's like, you're got to have some romance with your, 
with your work life, man. Like, what an interesting <laughs> perspective. I, I've never heard anyone say it like that, but that is exactly how it feels to me. It's yeah, like, well, I mean, I know because I know you like in one of your recent emails, you're like, I've written emails with a baby posted on my arm yeah. and one handed in the dark. And it's do you love what you do or do you not? Because mm-hmm. if you do, then you can find joy in doing that. And remembering to put yourself in the position that you could be otherwise where you're working for somebody else or you hate your job and you want to leave. So if I have to choose between having the occasional day where I'm watching Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire and yes. keying in keying, <laughs> keying in like mindless data work while I'm doing that because my wife's not even home yet because she's still at school teaching, then screw it. Like I'm just going to I'm going to do it. I'm not going to I'm going to give it my all to not let my health become in jeopardy right. because of of work. I would say that I mean you could literally call that life because it's it's your health. But right. you get my point. I think most people think like leisure time versus work time. Uh, yeah. I mean, you just opened up a can of worms. I'll try not to go down that rabbit hole. But it's like when people would ask me, like, how do you find the time to write your email every day? And I'm like, well, how do you find the time to hug your kids? You like doing it. So you're just going to do it. But yep. yeah, but let's let's bookmark that one because it's well, the, with a whole I, rant. I do have a small aside on that. Okay. If you don't, uh, yeah, go for it. Are you are you a Alex Ramosi fan? know who he is i'm familiar with that i read i read the first hundred million dollar uh offers book and i i mean i can tell you what i think well i'm i read the book too but this is from a podcast that he was on uh where he he had somebody who critiqued him uh asking early on as he was getting into fitness like aren't you worried about like you know burning out when you're trying to get you know in this finesse your physical form and you know really get buff and big like he is now Mm -hmm. Um, and it was from a guy who wasn't fit. Like, I don't know if he was severely overweight or, mm. you know, uh, looked like a, a beanpole. Right. But Alex said his reply was, man, you can worry about critiquing that when you're, are, when you're at my level. And that's how I feel in this position where I might, I don't know what I have to finesse and refine about it, but I know that it's a good position to be in. So those details are things that I can work out later as far as uh, or, like, I don't anticipate that I'm going to burn myself out because that's not a problem that I've had to encounter lately. Right. Uh, yeah. That, but, actually that, that is the crux of the question is like every, everybody I talk to who fears a subscription model, they're attract they're They, they are attracted to it for the predictability and the, the safety of it, of having a lot, you know, more clients than they're used to. And in a way, where they're allowed to charge their credit card every month. So it feels very predictable. It feels like you still have separated your time from money. It feels like you're still your own boss. Um, they want that. But then the fears, and if, I feel like probably most of the questions I've asked are trying to allay those fears or at least surface the fears or the reality of it to see if it's really a good choice for them. And burnout is basically those, like that is the encapsulation of the whole fear. All the fear boils down to burnout. Because they're imagining that this kind of predictability, that the dark side of this predictability and call it high utilization, the the dark side of that is burnout. And that they'll just be like overwhelmed, under-delivering, feeling bad that they're under-delivering, resenting their clients and all of these things. And so I guess probably probably all of my questioning so far, most of it, is around talking about that fear, whether it's justified or not, and 
And if it's not justified, then then what were the tactics that you used to kind of prevent yourself from from what you also feared was getting buried in work at the very beginning? Yeah, it's I think there's I mean, gosh, there's so many things that you can do to avoid burnout. I would definitely say that you it's not like you have to jump all in. I mean, I didn't do that. I didn't do that with any like with my first design business. I didn't do that with this. It mm. was I'm going to test this hypothesis and put the rubber to the road in a way that I know I can manage. Because I know for a fact, based on past experience at design school and having taken on clients myself, I knew for a fact that five people was 100% going to be manageable. It didn't matter what they threw on that board. I knew that five was going to be something that we could handle. Mm -hmm. Cool. So So you found a point where the leap of faith was minuscule if non-existent. A leap of faith was more like a a step, you know? (laughs) Yeah, a step of faith. And super important, you said it, but I want to amplify it, an experiment, dipping your toe. You've said it a couple of times. It's like, let's just dip our toe in this and maybe it will be, uh, I don't want to say mistake. I don't want to say failure. It's just alert, you know, something we learn and the the bet, the ante that you're putting on the table, pretty low, pretty low and potential upside, extremely high. Yeah, exactly. Because, yeah. It, yeah. So I, I think the other thing to mention around that would be, I mean, if you want to talk burnout, like have some other stuff that your value is more contingent upon that's outside of work than this. Like, I don't have hobbies. Do, I mean, karate or play music, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> and spend time with people who aren't either your coworkers or clients. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just, that's, that's good advice in general. The capacity thing is the thing that's, just always comes up. So do, oh, okay. So let's, I know I'm looking at the time. I know we got a roll, but this has been great. So I really appreciate you sharing your experience. Is there any, any final words that you could perhaps, perhaps help someone who wants to take the step of faith, you know, any, any parting words of advice for that person? There are, I, there are lots of them. I started writing about subscription stuff and like all of these people we're like, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. So I've been looking for folks just like you who have actual experience doing it and can can help other people take the step of faith, which is probably going to be the title of this episode. But no, so so any parting words of advice for that group of people who are on the fence? What do you have to lose? I think that's what it comes down to, right? Like, and if you do have, if you do have something to lose, what are the things you can do to mitigate that risk? Like. Yeah. Can you chop it down a little bit? Can you limit yourself on clients? Can you raise the price so high that you know you're only going to get people or like that this is going to cover you? Because you have to think about where you're at now versus where you want to be. And if where you think, if where you want to be, if this seems like it's a step to get there, then why not take it? Because you can always pivot and change. Like you're thinking, I think the problem is that they think that everyone's looking at them and watching them. And they think that if this screws up, then everybody's going to see I'm a failure. And the truth is, there's maybe going to be five people that see this as a failure. It's you and then the four people that you tell this about that were directly involved watching you. Mm -hmm. And that's okay because it will lead to something else. And there's nothing that stops you from changing your method again because you made a change to become a solopreneur anyway and took a big amount of risk. That's a huge leap. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge leap. You left left a steady full-time job with benefits and to yeah. try and sell your stuff to people who've never met you before. It's and crazy. now there's a different method for you to do that that could be 
something that you like. It could also not be, but there's there's not going to be any kind of sword that you can pull out there that doesn't have two edges mm-hmm. that isn't going to cut both ways. Because I know for a fact that we are leaving money on the table by not doing value-based pricing in the traditional right. sense. Mm-hmm. But this is the the newest method that we think we could have, that we thought we could utilize and leverage and it's worked out so far. And it seems to be the trend that everyone else is going toward. So we figured there's no reason that we can't try it and see if it's worth it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone, someone asked me the other day what the opposite of failure was. And I said, regret, not success. And that's, and it's, it's not, it's actually not like literally speaking, it's probably not literally true, but if you're not failing, then you're not trying anything. And if you're not trying anything, you're probably going to end up regretting that. So no, it's like, it's like the zone of proximal development for anything, right? Like, uh, you and I, apart from wearing black t-shirts all the time, we have another thing in common, which is that we both practice martial arts. Ah. Uh, so I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and nice. I took like a 10 year, I took a 10 year hiatus from when I graduated high school and I did wrestling then as well. But you show up after 10 years. And even though I had some skill, like you get, the crap beat out of you but that's the only way you learn is through having those trials and then knowing how to counter them and playing more strategically in your head so the next time it comes around you'd have some methods for defense and then pushing forward on the offensive so i i I wish that that mentality could be widespread throughout your audience and across anybody who takes their life and their responsibility for their finances into their own hands because it's a huge risk yeah yeah, it's you know you can't learn to ride a bike by reading a book. At a certain point, you got to skin <laughs> oh, your knee. If you did, I'd be very impressed. You know, <laughs> if you could learn to read a book while riding a bike, though, that would be something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and let's leave it there. That's a mic drop right there. So, Zach, thank you so much for joining us on Ditching Hourly. Jonathan, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Where can people go to find out more about Conversion Factory or whatever whatever else you're doing, and perhaps even ask you follow up questions? The Best places to, if you want to see what Conversion Factory is doing, you can go to conversionfactory.co. That would be the easiest way to see like the pricing structures and what we're offering and get more detail on that. If you want to follow me, I am most active on Twitter. You can find me at ZSTVNS. It's my first initial and then my last name, Sans Vowels. Old school. And, and you, yeah, uh, me and Paul Jarvis, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, or you can find me on LinkedIn searching Zach Stevens. Just look for the semi-attractive bald guy and that'll be me. Nice. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I hope you join us again next time for Ditching Hourly. Bye. Hey, Jonathan again. Do you have questions about how to improve your business? Things like value pricing your work instead of billing for your time or positioning yourself as the go-to person in your space or maybe productizing your services so you never have to have another awkward sales call or spend hours writing another custom proposal. Book a one-on-one coaching call with me and get answers to these questions and others in the time it takes you to get ready for work in the morning. Best of all, you're covered by my 100% satisfaction guarantee. If at the end of the call you don't feel like it was worth it, just say the word and I'll refund your purchase in full. To book your one-on-one coaching call, go to jonathanstark.com call, C-A-L-L. That URL again is jonathanstark.com slash call. Hope to see you there.